These past few weeks, we have been working our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we've arrived at chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. We're going to read through verse 14, and then we're going to try and unpack those verses and see their importance for our life today. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us with all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Verses 6 and 7 that uh, we just read at the beginning of our section here are what many commentators see as the very heart of Paul's letter to the Colossians. They stand, as it were, on top of everything that he has just said, and they point forward to everything he's going to say in the rest of the letter. And here, in fact, he is launching his attack now in earnest against those who were trying to convince the Colossians that they needed something more than Christ. And rather, instead of beginning by just picking apart this false teaching, which he will do later, Paul instead begins uh, really uh, building upon what he has already said, and that is pointing forward to or pointing up to Christ and showing them what they already have in him, as we saw over and over again, in him, in him, with him. This is who you have, and this is what you have in Christ. Therefore, you don't need anything else, is what he is trying to do. He is not just showing negatively, don't go after this, but positively, why they don't need to go after anything else. This is who they are, and this is what they have in Christ. And so in these verses, he is holding up the benefits of the believer's union with Christ. Here and elsewhere in the New Testament, we understand that the Christian's life is spiritually united to Christ's own life. And so what we have here is not just the benefits for the Colossians, but the benefits to, uh, to anyone who would claim to be Christians. What he does is wants to, he wants to hold out to them what they have as the true people of God and show them what it means to be united in, with, with Christ through faith. And so this is what we want to see this morning. One of the great doctrines of the New Testament are union with Christ. What does that mean for us? What implications does it have for our lives now and for what we look forward to in the future as God's people? And this morning, if you're here and you are not a Christian, uh, then we want to make clear that these benefits are not yours. That, that you cannot appreciate these things because you don't have Christ. You have not been united to him. And yet we also hold this out to you. 
with the encouragement that by the end you will be convinced not only of your need of Christ, but of all the benefits you can have in him when you trust him with your life before God. So this morning, this is what we want to see, the benefits of our union with Christ. We will see five things uh, if you are following along on the note sheet or just want to keep mental track of our progress. The first thing we want to see is this. Faith in Christ brings spiritual stability. Faith in Christ brings spiritual stability. We see this in the first two verses. Paul says again, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here Paul summarizes the basic message he has for the Colossians. Notice what he says. The Colossians had already received Christ Jesus the Lord. That is, uh, we know through Epaphras the gospel had come to them. The gospel of Christ, the good, good news about his saving work for sinners. And they had believed. And in believing, they had received the Lord Jesus Christ. He became theirs, Savior, Master, and King. He was the one who had made them right with God and was the Lord of all things. And Paul says, you began well, as it were. You have already received him. You have believed in him. Now continue in that way. Just as you once believed, so keep believing. You have received Christ. Continue to walk, to live in him. Paul specifically tells them to be rooted and built up in him. And he is using two metaphors here, one agricultural and one structural. The first is the idea drawn, from, I think, from Jesus' own teaching in John 15. You'll remember he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to abide in Christ, to remain in him, to be rooted in him, means that we will continue to have spiritual life and we will continue to produce the fruit that is the evidence of such a life. Paul is telling the Colossians to make sure that their lives are rooted in Christ. That is, they are connected to him, that spiritual life might flow from him to us. And then Paul switches gears into a different metaphor, and he says that our lives need to be built up in Christ, verse 7. Like a building being constructed brick by brick, so we are to allow our lives to be built up into him who is Christ. That is to say, I, I believe a structure that resembles and reflects who Christ is. If we do this, what will the result be? Paul says we will be established in the faith just as we were taught. Certainly faith here is the means by which we will be rooted and built up and established. But when he speaks about the faith here, he doesn't mean our trust in God. He means the faith that is the Christian faith, the message about Christ, Christian doctrine. The Colossians had already been taught. The Christian faith, they had heard from the Old Covenant scriptures, which explained that all of creation was brought into existence by uh, the one true God. In fact, by the word of Christ himself. They also had heard of the rebellion of humanity against that creator God. And they had heard of God's redeeming love, not only for his special people Israel, but for all of creation. As Christ is sent forward to be the one who died for sinners, that they might be brought back to God. And Paul says... I don't want you to just know that and think that you can move on from it. He says, don't just think, well, I know the Christian faith. I know what it's all about. You got anything else for me? Because frankly, there is that temptation, isn't there, for us to say, well, I've heard it all already and, and, and not bother thinking about 
anything with church. And yet Paul is telling him, no, go deeper. Be more firmly rooted into that which you know. I am always amazed, always amazed, uh, pleasantly so. Well, part of me is frustrated, I'll just be honest. But part of me is also happy because I, I, can, I can say things from the pulpit, uh, teach on doctrine and, and, and expound the scriptures, and weeks and months will go by and I hear somebody say, you know, I never thought about this before. I was just reading this today in the scriptures. I read this book or heard this other sermon, and I'm thinking, I just said that three years ago. Where were you? You were certainly right there, weren't you? Why is that? It's because, number one, I think God knows we need different things at different times. And there are things that we can know and we can believe and we can understand doctrinally, and yet suddenly, because of a circumstance in our life, that reality of that truth explodes in our life and gives us great comfort from God. But it also says, quite frankly, we're sometimes dull of hearing and we don't get everything the first time around. Uh, this is why God is telling us constantly, go back into the Word again and again and again and make that our, our very source of connectedness to Christ Himself. Because we don't get it all the first time. And Paul is reminding them, look, you've heard it, you've, been, you, you, you've got the faith, but now continue to be established in it. And notice how he ends, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, abounding in thanksgiving. Don't miss that because I think it's just so easy to read over certain phrases that sound churchy or religious and we miss out on the fact, or else we forget about the fact that Paul doesn't just throw words out. I mean, everything that he is saying is, it is intentional and calculated. Why do you think he ties walking in Christ with abounding in thanksgiving? Well, frankly, because that's how you become more firmly established in the faith. That's how you become rooted and built up into Christ, loving him more and more, living in him more and more. It's by being reminded of who you were and how you came to Christ, the glories of what God has done for you. What else could bring such a profound sense of thankfulness that drives us again and again and again to our Savior, but by being reminded we were not worth the love that God gave us. We were not worth the precious blood of Christ. And yet, that is the thing that God has given to us. This is the call that Paul makes in the life of the Colossian Christians. And by the power of the Spirit, the same call is issued to us today. To continue to walk in Christ. To be rooted and built up in Him. To be established in the faith. And Paul doesn't just give that command. He doesn't just tell us the what. He also tells us why. He tells us because Christ has provided all that we need. So this is the second thing that we see, and that is this. Freedom in Christ brings spiritual discernment. Freedom in Christ brings spiritual discernment. Say, so how do we have freedom in Christ? By our union with Him. We have freedom now in Him, and that freedom brings with it spiritual discernment. Paul quickly moves from his desire for the Colossians to be established in the faith to the larger reasons for which he is writing them. Again, he wants them to be established that they will recognize a false faith that is an incorrect understanding of God and his ways when they hear it. And so in recognizing it to be false, reject it. Okay? I have no idea if it's true, but I like the illustration. Someone can Google it later and tell me if I'm wrong. I, and understand I said later. Okay? Uh, that, that, that is this. Supposedly, those people who work in catching uh, fraudulent monies don't actually study all the different kinds of fraudulent money. I'm told all they do all the time is handle the real thing. They examine the real thing. They know the watermarks and the real thing. So, so the moment someone says, I think this might be fake, they touch it and look at it. Oh, yeah, that's obviously wrong. Why? It's not because they're upon the latest and greatest. Of the, they just know the original so well. 
they're able to say, oh, false. And I think that's kind of what Paul, you know, that's not true. I mean, the principle is sound, I think. That's what Paul's getting at. Be so established in the faith that you recognize what is false when it comes your way. There is a a whiff of stench to it that says, "This this is not what's real. And so as they are seeking to walk in Christ, Paul warns them, see to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Just as verses 6 through 7 served as a kind of summary of the positive command for the entire letter, so these verses serve as a summary of the main threat Paul wants the Colossians to be wary of. He says, make sure no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty empty deceit. Now, Paul's word that we have as philosophy here is much broader than how we typically use it. Uh, Paul is not against taking philosophy classes in college. He's not against you reading someone like Kant or Sartre or or Foucault, although, frankly, there are better philosophers you can read. Uh, but, But his point is not don't engage in philosophy in that sense. Rather, the word that we have philosophy includes any system of thought religious or secular. So in one sense, Christianity can be called, by this definition, a philosophy. In fact, the, uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, in his writings, describes Judaism with the same word as a philosophy, and he also describes the various, the various parties within Ju- uh, Judaism, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as Jewish philosophies. And I think it's likely that the agitators themselves chose to describe their teaching with this word as a Christian philosophy. And Paul doesn't dispute the term. Instead, what he does is show it for what it is, an empty deceit. What they are presenting as the pathway to spiritual enlightenment is really a hollow, ineffective system of thought that lacks any intellectual, moral, or spiritual power. Why? Because it's not only based on empty deceit, but as Paul says, it is derived from human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. Rather than being a divine way of thinking, what's being peddled comes from the imagination of fallen humanity. More than that, fallen humanity as it is borne along by the demonic forces of pagan thought. What a contrast then between what they are peddling and the gospel of Christ that Paul has talked about in chapter 1. Paul showed how the gospel was truth from God, which produced spiritual life, which bore fruit in those who have spiritual life, and which causes growth in the people of God. Fundamentally, the message of the gospel that they heard was of Christ, in contrast to this philosophy that's being foisted upon them, which is not of Christ. And Paul says that Christians should always be wary of this false kind of teaching that would come and take them captive. That is a a way of thinking that may even sound right, that may have the appearance of godliness and yet is not really of Christ. The imagery imagery of captivity here, of course, is this idea of being carried away as plunder. You cannot help but but imagine those elemental spirits that Paul says are part and parcel of the force behind this false teaching being the ones gleefully taking people captive in that way of thinking. And it happens so easily. Don't, don't think, you know, well, it's, gonna, it's necessarily going to be obvious. It should be obvious. That's what Paul says. But for so many Christians today, it is not. I mean, I love the amount of resources we have 
as we go into Christian bookstores, and you can pull some amazing resources off the shelves there, but frankly, there's a lot of garbage that's there too. Just because it's slapped with a Christian publishing label doesn't mean it's fit for Christian consumption. Let me give you an example that I just saw kind of the the pinnacle of it. It's been a a long-coming example, and yet uh, the fruit of it, a stinky fruit of it, was just revealed this week to me. A few years ago, uh, a popular Christian author published a book on essentially biblical manhood, about the need for men to to step up and and to, to, to take hold of their relationship with God and to be more involved in living that out. And, and in his, the need that he perceived was a good need. But the, the, the way in which he offered the solution to the problem was not very good. In fact, many people uh, wrote an evaluation of that first book saying that it was unfortunate that he devalued both the written word and um, the church of God in favor of impressions and dreams and visions. This man kept writing books. They kept selling. And even though the theology keeps getting weirder, people keep buying it. So much so that in his most recent book, he begins talking about Jesus appearing to him all the time in very odd ways. He says at one point this, quote, what I love about these encounters is that every time, every time, Jesus is so true to his real personality. Sometimes fierce, sometimes gentle, always generous, and often very playful. Then he describes an experience his son had with, with this appearance of Jesus. Quote, my son was having a tough freshman year at college. So many students there are bound under the religious fog. One afternoon, just after a classmate had said something particularly hurtful to him, his son returned to his room and slumped onto his bed about as low as a young man can get. He looked over to the desk and saw Jesus sitting there in his desk chair, a smile on his face. He was wearing a pirate hat. Then he disappeared. Now, what a load of tosh. I mean, give me a break. I mean, does he really? I mean, I mean, how can people buy that and say, oh, yeah, that's biblical Christianity. That's what I need more of in my life, Jesus in a pirate hat. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but is this kind of smirky, pixie pirate Jesus the kind of vision that's going to inspire people to take up their cross and die for him, to, to lay down their lives in service to others in the here and now and across the nations as they take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think not. I'm sorry, but I think if, if Adoniram Judson and Ann Judson had seen this vision of a pirate Jesus, that they, would have, they would have checked themselves into a mental institution and not gone off to Burma to lay down their lives and suffer and die for him. It's just not cutting it. But more than just my impression, go to the scriptures themselves and see, is this the vision of the risen Christ that is presented? I think not. I think not. And yet, here is people bound in spiritual captivity believing this is the stuff of spiritual fullness. That this is the kind of thing they need to really be close to God. If only they could have this kind of experience. It gets worse, but we'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave the book there and just simply say this. We don't need that kind of rubbish when we have the truth of the gospel. And therefore, Paul says, be discerning. He says, Christ has freed you from that kind of nonsense. He has freed you from that kind of captivity to vain and empty, demonic thinking about the things of God so that your walk can be real and vibrant and not stunted because of the captivity of false teaching. 
Well, these are two benefits that come to us because of our union with Christ. The third is this. We have fullness in Christ and therefore we have spiritual life. Fullness in Christ brings spiritual life. Paul issues the warning of verse 8, but he also again tells us why we should be on guard. We should not be discerning or we should be discerning about any teaching or belief that is not of Christ because Christ has secured for us all that we need to be right with God and to grow in maturity with God. Paul says in verse 9, In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All that God is in His character, His attributes, His power and glory, that is who Jesus is. When we think of the infinite nature of divine mercy and grace and love, Paul says it is found in its fullness in Christ. When we think of divine wrath, justice, holiness, and righteousness, it is all found in its fullness in Christ. There is nothing lacking or incomplete in him. And that is true of when Je- that is true when, of Jesus when he walked this earth, and that is true of him today. Scholars tell us that this word dwell means to settle down or to reside. And Paul uses it in the present tense to help us understand this dwelling of the fullness of God in Christ is never changing. It's not as if at some point he wasn't fully God and then he was and now he's not again or any other permutation. He has been and forever will be the fullness of deity. Edward Payson captured what Paul meant by such a statement when he says this, if all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, Jesus, then in Christ Jesus alone can God be found. And he gives us an example to unpack what he means and just putting it in modern terms. He says, because uh, it was written a couple hundred years ago, suppose he says you have a friend and you know he is always hanging out at this one place. It could be the coffee, sh- coffee shop uh, from a pa- previous generation, might be the bowling alley, might be in front of his television watching sports or uh, who knows where. But you always know this guy is always here all the time. Uh, what Payson says is then it would be foolish to go somewhere else to try and find him. If your friend is always hanging out at the library, it, it's the... It's, the height of idiocy to go to Walmart and look for him. You know he's not going to be there. He's always at the library. And so he says, similarly, since the whole Godhead resides in Jesus Christ as in a permanent habitation, we must repair to Jesus Christ if we would find God. Isn't that what what Jesus told the disciples? They They said, look, we will believe if you just show us the Father. What did he say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not that the Son and the Father are the same person, but they are of the same essence of full deity. He was God in the flesh. Jesus is the one who reveals God to sinful people. And and this brings us to the second point. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's not that he is just a spirit of God like the Father, but now he is the spirit of God in bodily form. You know, in the first few centuries, and even up until today, there were those who struggled with this idea of fully God and fully man. And so they would basically go off the rails on one of two sides. They would say, well, he's not really God. Or, oh yeah, he's definitely God, but he's not fully man. And Paul here says, not just here, but throughout the New Testament, we see it's both. He is the fullness of God in bodily form. And we'll talk about the implications of that later on towards the end of the sermon. But for now, it's important, I think, that we ask the question, if you've been reading Colossians, does that sound familiar? 
I mean, it should because he's basically said the same thing in chapter 1, didn't he? When he unfolds this glory of Christ and, and he brings it together in this way. Now, just as a side note, why, why is it important, do you think, that Paul repeat himself, even when in the course of a letter, not least of which to multiple letters, that God duplicate the same teaching of different New Testament authors and on and on and on? Well, one thing that I just learned is if a teacher repeats something a couple of times, it's probably worth remembering. It's probably important, right? If in the course of one lecture he says something five times, you probably write that down and assume that's going to be on the test, right? And so Paul is saying if you're going to truly understand who Christ is, if you're going to see the benefits of your union with him, <clears throat> then one of the things you have to understand is this essential quality of his divine personhood, fully God and fully Man. And he tells us even here why it's important. He said the fullness of God exists in Christ. Now listen to what he says. And you have been filled in him. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. Because you have been united to Christ the fullness that is in him is now united to us. If the fullness of God is in Christ and we have Christ, then we have the fullness of spiritual life. No one can ever say, you need something more. You can say, ha, why do I need something more when I've got Christ? The fullness of God dwells within him. Therefore, my life is united with his. Therefore, I have the fullness of spiritual life because I have Christ. The question is, how does this union actually take place? We've been saying, if you have Christ, if you have Christ, if you have Christ, if you, if you are united with him, if union with Christ is a part of life, but how does that happen? Well, we're told in verses 11 through 12, and what we see here is this, that fellowship with Christ brings spiritual assurance. Fellowship with Christ brings spiritual assurance. In verses 11 through 12, Paul explains how our union with Christ has happened. He says, in him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This week I read about a large church out in the Midwest and I was uh, told that during an interim period, in other words, they did not have their senior pastor there, uh, one of the associate pastors established the practice of having those that came forward for baptism give their testimony in the baptistry uh, before they were baptized. Eventually a new pastor came and it was his intention to lead the denomination in baptisms. And that goal began to adversely affect his ministry practice in unhelpful ways. And on one occasion a five-year-old was brought into the baptistry where the pastor asked him in front of the church why he wanted to be baptized. The boy replied, I don't know. And everybody kind of, you know, like, uh, what's going on here? So the pastor kind of grinned and looked at the congregation. And he asked the boy again, well, have you asked Jesus into your heart? The honest child looked up and replied, I don't know. Several more questions and even more embarrassing answers proceeded. And the pastor, despite this child having publicly confessed that he did not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, baptized him anyway. No, I just have to believe that pastor never word, read these words from Paul. Or else he would never have been so flippant about baptism. Because Paul here shows us the, the spiritual significance of our 
physical and spiritual baptism in Christ. And you know, as, as Baptists, we have to be careful here. Because in our zeal to make sure, sure we get the mode and the timing of baptism right, immersion water by only those who confess faith in Christ, there is a real tendency to reduce baptism to the merely symbolic. Well, baptism doesn't save you, it's just a sign. Well, that's true. It does not save you, but it is so much more than just a sign. It is that. It is that, but it is so much more than that. And we have to be careful that in our effort to, to say what it does not mean, that we fail to acknowledge what it does mean. Here's what Paul says. In Christ, in him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is one of those places where Sam Storm says that Paul presents glorious truths in gruesome terms. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, go and ask somebody else later, okay? Uh, for now, we'll just assume that you know what it is, and we will proceed. Circumcision was the covenantal sign of God's people in the Old Covenant. Being circumcised uh, meant that you were part of the covenant people of Israel, and now Paul says those of the new covenant in Christ, they too have been circumcised, but it is with a circumcision made without hands. What he means is something that, that God actually required and commanded in the Old Testament as well as promised would come in a new and separate way, and that is a circumcision of the heart. He is speaking about the same thing that John speaks about, or excuse me, Jesus speaks about in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus of being born again, of what in theological terms we call regeneration, the giving of new life. If you want to, to, to see more about that, I would say look to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Go back and read John 3 again. This, this circumcision of the heart, this spiritual renewal that God effects was the result of the putting off of the body of the flesh. That is a removal of our old sinful life apart from Christ. What we used to be has been removed from us. Those ways, those desires, those sins are gone because of this circumcision of the heart. And how did this come to us? Because he says it was of this, because of the circumcision of Christ himself. Now what does that mean? Does it mean his literal circumcision as a child of the covenant? Well, we know that happened, but no, that's not what he means, I think. I think that what he means is, just as the foreskin is removed in the covenant sign, so Jesus' life, his, his physical life was cut off from God through his death on the cross. It was because of his hellish death under God's wrath that salvation has come to us. Not only his death, but also his resurrected life. And this is where we find the significance of our baptism. It is not just a bare ritual. It is an act of faith whereby we proclaim to others our union with Christ. Paul says that we have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says this union with Christ comes through faith in Christ. You're looking to him in faith. When we trust him for salvation, then his death on the cross becomes our death on the cross. His resurrection from the tomb becomes our resurrection from the tomb. And all of that is made public. All of that is confessed. All of that is rooted in 
our physical baptism. This is why we take great pains to make sure the person going into the water understands their life, what their life with God is. Someone may come and say, I'm a Christian. We say, great. And they say, can I be baptized? And we say, maybe. Because here's the reality. If your life is not really united with Christ, if you are not really the recipient of salvation, then you shouldn't be baptized. Because it is the public proclamation of your union with him, your faith in him, that you are part of his people, saved, ransomed by his death on the cross. This, this is part of the reason why, too, I would be very hesitant to say, well, that person's a Christian, they're just not baptized yet. That could be true. But especially when you are leading someone to the Lord, the, the reality, the, the, the conference, the assurance that the community has that a person is saved is not just because they pray a prayer. It's not just because they walk down the aisle. It's because they have obeyed Christ in baptism and have said to all, to all of creation and God and his angels, my life has been united to Christ's. This is why baptism is so significant. We were spiritually dead, and yet now God has made us alive because of Christ's saving work. Don't let the wonder of that just just pass by you. Don't just say, I know that. Because it's the reality of our spiritual life with Christ, our, our fellowship with Him through His death and resurrection that gives us ultimately assurance of salvation. Sometimes we ask ourselves, don't we, why? You know, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if they're saved. And we are tempted to look at our life. Sometimes we're told, look look to your life. Do you see evidence of God's fruit? And that's helpful. But here's the thing. What's going to happen when you look at your life? You'll see fruit, hopefully. But you're also going to see sin. Aren't you? Because though we have the Spirit in our life, we still have our sinful nature. And therefore, until the resurrection of our own bodies from the dead, our life is this mixture of righteousness and sin what does that mean it means this that what we need is an objective promise outside ourselves that provides assurance of our salvation and that is what is provided to us through the work of christ we look to him and if we trust in him the promise is there that we are saved because we have fellowship with him and his death and his resurrection Therefore, though we may struggle, we do not lose heart because, as we read earlier, there is no more condemnation. Fellowship with baptism in Christ means we have assurance of our salvation. Finally, the final benefit we see to our union with Christ is this. Forgiveness in Christ brings spiritual freedom. Forgiveness in Christ brings spiritual freedom. Verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Though the Colossians were united to Christ, they weren't always united to Christ. Though they were now God's people, they weren't always God's people. They weren't born knowing God or a member of the covenant community. Instead, Paul says, before your union with Christ, you were dead in your trespasses. Now, a trespass is exactly what it sounds like. You have a designated boundary, and you go over it. Someone has said, don't come any farther, and you say, I'm going in. And Paul says, implicitly, what we have crossed is the boundary of God's glory. That is to say, 
that we have willfully rebelled against God, disobeying his standard of what is right and wrong, defying the loving relationship he has sought us by making us in his image. And understand that Colossians aren't particularly evil in this way. All of humanity is in the same situation. All of us, before our union with Christ, have committed the same trespass. Unlike the circumcised hearts in which we now live and love him, like the Colossians, all of God's people were once spiritually dead. There was no life. There was no pulse when it came to our lives before God. And yet, even in that state, what does he say? God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We have offended God, not our neighbor, not the state of Michigan or our parents or any other world power by which we should be punished through laws, although that's good. Ultimately, we've offended God. And therefore, the punishment we deserve is clear and just and eternal. Yet Paul says, for those who trust Christ, the trespass has been forgiven. How can he do that? He tells us, verses 13 and 14. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You ever wondered why the Romans put the sign, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, above his head? It's because the Romans typically nailed the offense of the individual being crucified over their heads. It was blasphemy in Judaism, therefore, that was the offense that they put over his head. And yet, how true was it? The reality, though, is this. In God's mind, it was not his own crimes that were nailed to the cross, but ours. Every evil thought, every hateful word, every lustful look, every prideful attitude, rebellious decision, and act of idolatrous worship, every sin that stood between us and God as a debt that we could never pay, Christ paid for through his death on the cross. This not only makes us right with God, But also notice verse 15, through the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now remember what he said earlier, that Christ was the head of all rule and authority and our life was hidden in him. That that is not just rule and authority over us, but over everything in heaven and earth and under the earth, as we sang earlier. Those rulers and authorities are not just physical rulers and authorities. They are spiritual rulers and authorities. We're talking about demonic forces here. Now, what does Paul say? He says, if we have Christ, we have spiritual freedom. We have the spirit of Christ that has given us new life so that we can be free from the power of sin and lead holy lives. We don't have to sin anymore. He will say elsewhere, if we walk by the spirit. We have forgiveness of our sins because of our union with Christ, which means we can live free from the guilt of our sins. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do we do? We don't say, I'll try harder. I say, I look to him who made an end of all my sin. The guilt is done. It is what Hebrews says the old covenant sacrifices can never do. You offer a sacrifice one year, what happens? You go out and sin and you realize, I'm going to offer a sacrifice again next year. And so we can never have a guilt-free conscience. But we can in Christ. Because the sacrifice that has been made once for all. If we have a life that is united to Christ, then he has defeated death by rising again and promised the same for us. Therefore, we do not fear anything that would threaten us in this life because we have hope of the life to come. This is why, and you know, if you read it, 
and, and don't think in churchy language, it's pretty shocking when Jesus says, don't fear those that can kill the body. I'm thinking every week I see TV shows that are built around the reality of our fear of people who can destroy the body. People who can do us physical harm. That's the drama of the situation. Jesus, don't fear them. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in heaven. What does that mean? That means if we, if we fear God, if our life is united to Christ, that means we need not fear those. Now, I'm not saying, you know, run out here and you know, don't wear seatbelts and you know, drive out the, out the car saying, woo, I fear no man. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is when, when, when Christ now says, take up your cross and follow me, you realize I've already died because my life is hidden with Christ. And because he is raised, one day I will be raised. Therefore, I do not fear anything in this life. As George Whitfield so, so helpfully has said, we are immortal till our work is done. God will allow our death when he's good and ready and not a second before. Therefore, when we die, it was by his will and it is for our good and the good of his people. And if we have not yet died, that means our work is not yet finished and we press on. Why? Because we have fellowship with Christ. Furthermore, if we have union with Christ... We have the one who has defeated every force of spiritual darkness. He has reduced them to nothing, leaving them powerless over his people. Don't miss this. He didn't just triumph over them. Paul says he put them to shame. He openly mocked them through the work of the cross. We have freedom from every evil power and need not fear them. Think about that. I hear so many Christians worried about demons and saying, well, I think they've got affliction by a demon. If you are united to Christ, there is no, no spiritual power that has authority over you. He has put them to shame. He says, he has left them powerless. Does that mean they can tempt you? Sure. But then you're giving them the power. Because he says he's already freed you from the power of sin and temptation. If you're abiding in him, if you're walking in him, if you're following the spirit, they themselves have no power or authority over you because Christ has triumphed over them. If we have Christ, then we have the fullness of spiritual life. And nothing, nothing can ever add to it or take away from it. If our lives are hidden with him, if we are living in the experience of union with Christ, then we have everything that we possibly need for the fullness of spiritual life. Father, we are thankful for this doctrine of union with Christ, that our, our lives are spiritually united to his in every way. Father, it not only gives us hope, but encourages us to press forward in the things that you have called us to do, living the kind of life that honors you, giving us freedom from fear and any kind of spiritual tyranny that would threaten us to make us weak and cowardly as your people. God, like Paul, we can think it makes us not have to worry about being hungry or naked or ridden with sickness because we have you, and therefore we can... We can sacrifice our very lives as Christ commanded us to. Father, we not look for something beyond what we already have, thinking that somehow we're missing out in our walk with you. God, you have given us everything in Christ. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Father, make us all the more so as we look to him, continuing to trust him, remembering our union with him, that we indeed might live for him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.